Well, if you would uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, uh, there at the very beginning. Uh, if you don't have a hard copy in front of you, the second page of the bulletin uh, has the sermon text for this morning. Uh, as Matt mentioned uh, at the beginning of the service this morning, uh, my name is Joshua Drake. I am your most recently newest elected uh, ruling elder. Uh, if you have been considering going through officer training or serving an officer, Fear not. Uh, to my knowledge, they don't usually ask newly elected officers to preach the next Sunday. Um, I don't think that's standard practice. You can ask Tony or Bartle or some of the guys that uh, were elected last year as well. Uh, but the 4th of July, particularly coming off of General Assembly, uh, it tends to be the, the hardest Sunday of the year uh, to find a substitute. Uh, a baseball analogy might be to say that uh, Matt's been in extra innings here this week, serving the church uh, in a different venue than here this morning, uh, and they're calling in a position player here to uh, get through some innings here this morning. Uh, but why in the world would I be preaching from the book of Revelation? Uh, after all, you know, it's not exactly an easy book to begin with to understand what it is. Uh, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm preaching from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, uh, because it's an introduction. Uh, introductions in the Word of God are important. After all, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for the church. Uh, they tend to be things that we just sort of skip through relatively easy, breathe on through to the, the famous passages that many of us have memorized. But they actually do a great job of establishing the, the setting and often the purposes and the main themes of the book. And because of that, you don't need to have been through the first several weeks of Matt's messages in Isaiah to get any of the references that he's making to previous chapters, and it touches on some larger themes. So, Lord willing, I'm giving myself a relatively large strike zone here uh, to have an introduction to one of uh, the books of the New Testament uh, for us to dive in on. Uh, but before we read here from Revelation chapter 1, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, give us ears to hear, to see in your word wonders of your holiness, of your truth, of your justice and standards, but of your love, your goodness, your wisdom your power on behalf of your people. Uh, Lord, I ask that as we read these words of the, uh, the revelation of the Apostle John, Lord, that you would bless us, uh, that you would move us uh, to putting them into action in our lives, uh, that we would be a people that will serve your kingdom as your hands and your feet, uh, not just gathered together as you've called us here uh, once a week on a Sunday morning, but we, that we would be your people uh, throughout the week, month, years, lifetime that you have ordained for each and every one of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So let's uh, follow along with me, please, as I read uh, from Revel the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Praise be to God. So I'll I'll confess right off the bat here, I like to preach one-point sermons. But one of the things along that lines is for all of you Perhaps some of you who are Matt was trying to dismiss there to, to children's shirts here this morning. So all of you who are under the age of 18 or perhaps 16 who are driving home with your parents today, it's now your job to quiz your parents on what the main point of today's sermon was, to make sure that they don't forget about what that is. So what's the main point this morning? Well, Revelation is actually written for instructing the Christian life. Uh, Let's be honest, that's not how most of us encounter the book of Revelation and most of our studies of the Word of God. It actually has a pastoral intent and instruction. It's not just speculative futurism, but it's intended to be rather practical. The reason why I can pick up Revelation 1 through 8 is because it's like the introductions to basically every one of the other epistles in the New Testament, because it's actually written for the recipients, the recipients of these seven churches. It's written to a specific audience, these seven cities with seven churches in Asia Minor, mostly modern-day Turkey. But at the same time, just like Paul's letter to Romans or the church in Corinth or Thessalonica or Philippi, pick whatever your favorite city is that got a letter from Paul in the New Testament— The audience and the situation that they find themselves, even though it's specific to those events, specific to that time in the first century as John is writing from the island of Patmos to these churches that probably knew who he was intimately, these are also words written for us 2,000 years later in a very general sense as well. After all, it declares in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud. So that's a good start for all of us. We've done that. But it goes on. Chapter 2, verse 7, if you read on down there, it declares, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's for more than just these seven congregations. In fact, there's an echo here of what Matt's been preaching through. This is the curse of Isaiah 6.10 of The ears of the Israelites becoming deaf as they worship idols, being undone by the power of the Holy Spirit in his people. These seven congregations in Asia Minor represent, in a lot of ways, a microcosm of what the church can find itself to be during this present age. 
But the content, this is the introduction, remember. This is setting us up for what are we expecting to get in the book of Revelation. Well, it's expecting to give us instruction for the life and the action of the church. Obviously, blessed are those who hear the reading aloud of the Word of God. But the blessing isn't just for hearing. It's not just for sitting back, reading. Maybe you've got Charlton Heston reading the Bible on tape or something. But the blessing is not just for hearing. It's also for keeping, for heeding, for realizing that the Word of God doesn't just come into us and somehow transform us, but that transformation then leads to actions that reflect the holiness of God. After all, We're called to work out our salvation, what God has put in us to then bring out into fruit. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, talking about the the wonderful way in which we are saved, not by works, but by God's grace alone, is followed by Ephesians 2, 10, where it declares we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. There is an expectation that as we encounter the gospel and it changes who we are, that it does have implications for how we live from there. James warns the church, James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And Christ's last words, the Great Commission, Matthew 28.20, It's not just go out, baptize as many people as possible, make as many disciples as possible, but then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The blessing doesn't simply come through the magical incantation of reading a holy scripture. Don't get me wrong, we should read God's word. It is living and active and powerful, cutting to the very core of our being, bringing us before the holiness of God teaching us as the only source of the good news of the gospel. But it's not magical incantations. It's something that actually instructs us on what there is. But you can ask, well, hold on a second. We're starting here in the book of Revelation. I mean, my exposure to Revelation tends to be pretty confusing. How in the world can what most people know about Revelation be considered practical. It's kind of speculative, right? Nobody's sure what it's actually supposed to mean. That's sort of one of those questions they ask you whenever you're standing to be an officer about, you know, what's your view on the end times there in Revelation? How do you figure out those various different things? And after all, it is confusing. You get into the text. It's even declared here. It's a symbolic prophecy. There's dragons, there's abysses, there's bowls, trumpets, seals, lamps, I mean, you feel like you've walked into Hogwarts or Narnia or Middle Earth, as it were. And you feel like you need a separate guide to understand what's going on. It sort of feels like you take every image of the Old Testament, every symbol, every metaphor, every possible reference, dump it in a kaleidoscope, shake it up, and then spin it around, and somehow you're supposed to make sense out of all that. That's not exactly inaccurate, to be honest with you. It does require work. It does require some degree of context of understanding the minutia of the detail of the book of Revelation. It requires background understanding as well. Now, the the folks that lived in these first seven churches here, I think they had it a little easier than we did. The Old Testament was the only Bible they had. 
And they weren't going around passing out New Testaments with Psalms and Proverbs on the back, leaving out the majority of the Bible. What they knew was the Old Testament, the references here. They, they lived in the first century when John is writing and they're making references to the, the life of these various different cities. They would have known it intimately. I think if you'd walked into first century Roman cities and mentioned Pike's Peak, nobody would have had a clue about what you were saying. You mentioned the mountain here in the springs, and I think everybody kind of knows what you're talking about. It's that one out there. This background in the setting it makes it easier for them, and let's be honest, they also didn't have Netflix. They weren't spending their weekends binging shows and being distracted by a culture around you. Some of those things may be harder for us today to understand when you get into the later chapters of Revelation. At the same time, Revelation is a wonderful example of how Scripture still is clear. It doesn't take a PhD, a demon, a seminary degree, going to a Bible college to understand the message of Revelation. It's pretty simple. The end of the day, the end of the age, the end of the world, Jesus wins. His kingdom will be victorious. The book is complex. Our theology, whenever we seek to understand the deep things of God, is hard work. But the general message is extremely clear. We'd never want to lose the forest for the trees at the end of the day. Well, when you look out the window and you look at Pike's Peak, you can't exactly say, okay, I know just by looking at that imagery out there, I know exactly how tall Pike's Peak is. But you can tell it's the tallest. You can tell that that mountain range is higher than we are here this morning. The, the general idea that it stands out as the tallest peak in our view, is obvious. In the same way, the very message of the gospel here, setting the expectations for life as a disciple, is clear in Revelation. It sets our expectations about what we should expect. Life as those who follow in the footsteps of Christ will entail and who we are. It gives us a sense of our true identity. But if that's the point of what Revelation is going to try and do here for us, set our expectations, give us an identity as a practical way of instructing the Christian life, does that really matter? Does it matter if we have expectations about what we're going to encounter? Does it have expectations? Does it matter if we know who we are in Christ Jesus? Well, the world thinks so. The world is pretty darn convinced that who you understand yourself to be and your expectations about what life is going to entail is extremely important. When you are outside of church on Sunday morning, every television station, commercial program, every broadcast on YouTube, newspaper, commercial, pick all of that. Every single one of those things has an angle. They are seeking to influence our expectations about what life is going to entail, about what challenges we're going to face, and therefore what products we need to overcome them, about who we are 
and therefore what we should be demanding of the world around us. Social media is designed in its very core algorithms not to transmit truth. It exists to tickle the ear, to give us things it's convinced we will like. Share, follow, subscribe, all of those things to engage us in a way that it can then shape our thoughts, our thinking, and our time. The culture outside of the Word of God wants to build our expectations to then guide how we live. It wants to establish our identity in order to perpetuate its own idols and its own self, not the kingdom of Christ. And as if you read on past verse 8 in the book of Revelation, we also need to be reminded That when the Bible sets that forth, that our expectations and identity as disciples of Christ are paramount for us entering into the life as Christ's disciples, those aren't things that we should just be looking outside the four walls of the church to feel threatened by, to be discerning and shrewd as serpents. But we should be reminded that when the Bible starts to speak about deception, hollow philosophies, Compromise and error in Corinth, Thessalonica, squabbling in Philippi, Nicolaitans and Colossians, going astray in Ephesians. It's writing about errors rising up within the context of the church itself. That's where we're told, see to it that nobody takes you captive by hollow philosophies and empty deceit. It's writing to the church in Rome, to the Christians there, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to take every captive thought captive, as he tells the church in Corinth. After all, it does seem here then that the Lord has made it clear that our expectations for life as believers in our sense of identity in Christ really does matter. So then how does Revelation 1, 1 through 8 here, how does the introduction for the book set us up to then endure faithfully the challenges, the trials and sufferings that Revelation declares is going to come for us? If Revelation is for instructing the Christian life, how does it do that? Well, it shapes our expectations and identity, giving us confidence in Christ's control of life, including our present trials. And if you want to talk about, you know, practical application to something that's relevant, I think most of us in the last year to 18 months have been through a few trials in our lives. This is how this opening section is bookended. It's intended to remind us, verses 4 and verses 8, it's who is and was and is to come, who's the one who controls what is and was and is to come. And this is relevant because probably most of us feel like we're in the last innings here of this global pandemic. But this is also probably the greatest crisis, global crisis, in the last half century. Something many of us never really expected to encounter. And so I think now is a very good time for us to be thinking about how we prepare 
for the next trials, the next sufferings that we're going to encounter. Something that Jerry Bridges and his book, Trusting God, makes paramount clear is something we need to be doing at all times. He asks the question there in the book that's basically its premise, how can I endure and trust the Lord in a world that's filled with suffering? How can I remain faithful to a God who allows a global pandemic to kill multiple millions of people, devastate businesses and lives over the course of a year? He talks about how perseverance comes from a mature faith and a knowledge of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf, that he is all-powerful and sovereign, all-wise, all-loving. But one of his strongest warnings to his readers is to remind them that a crash course in the sovereignty of God, in his wisdom and goodness and love for his people, a crash course in who we are in Christ and what our expectations for the Christian life should be, doesn't go so well when you're in the middle of trials and suffering. I mean, after all, when you're at mile marker 20 of a marathon, that's probably not the best time to start training. You should have done that beforehand. I think if we're all honest with themselves, ourselves, parts of the last year have caught most of us off guard as believers. It's been a trial, it's been suffering that has exposed idols, weaknesses, faithlessness in each and every one of our lives. And if we're honest, looking back over those things now, here in the moments of peace that we perhaps have, in the tranquil summer in Colorado, now is the time and opportunity for us to dig deep, to build our expectations, build our identity in Christ Jesus that we would prepare now so that we can respond clearly when the next suffering, the next trial comes, so that at home, at work, and maybe even in the broader media, we might be able to present a witness for a hope that lies within. And let's be honest here, too. If you read Revelation 1, 1 through 8, there's no special sauce. This isn't, to keep going with a baseball analogy here on the 4th of July, this isn't some sort of secret pitch. If anything, this is an Ephes pitch. This is just lobbing it over the plate and getting into the strike zone and recognizing that the gospel at the end of the day is very clear. The motivation for directing our identity and our expectations is simply the bedrock truths of the gospel. Good news that is still good. Now, if you want to sit down in your time in the week ahead and read through verses 4 through 8, it is densely packed with allusions to the identity and the work of Christ as our Lord throughout all of Scripture. John has that advantage. It's at the end. In his gospel in chapter 21, he declares, if we wrote down everything that would be possible to tell us about the life of Jesus Christ, the world couldn't even fit the books. Most pastors, most churches have tried in our libraries, but you know, there's always another bookcase that you can buy at Ikea to keep filling things up. And this is also an introduction. 
This is one of the other advantages of preaching from a passage like this, is it's not trying to get us into the weeds just yet. It's setting us up for where that deeper look is going to come. The rhetorical purpose, the the reason why these visions, this image of who Christ is, is presented here, is to give us a cumulative effect, to give us a great sense as we enter into things of who Christ is and who we are in Him. In sort of the world of art, you might say that this is a, a great impressionistic landscape. It's trying to give us the the general sense and the mood of what's there. This isn't macro photography trying to zoom in on the very smallest, clearest details of an insect or a flower. It declares to us here that God's sovereign reality of salvation is something that's not going to change no matter the situation. It reminds us here that what Jesus has done, who was, is, and is to come, is the same. It's this bedrock truth of the gospel that allows us to be content like Paul in each and every situation that we find ourselves in. It's here in who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf that we know that we can be content and confident in every trial and every suffering we're going to face. And when we gather as believers and we speak of what the Lord has done in our lives as a witness and encouragement to one another, it's in those things that we have something to share from our intimate walk with the Lord. The work of Jesus gives us a new identity in Christ and ability to glorify God. It's his shed blood that has saved us from sin's guilt, power, and punishment. And before we run through this, let's, let's read again here, verses 4 through 8, just to hear sort of in, in the wholeness of who, the overwhelming reality of who Christ is. Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kingdoms on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from sin by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's densely packed. I mean, this is a Lord who has forgiven us, who's made us a priesthood, given us access directly to God the Father beyond everything that we can imagine the Levites had in the Old Testament. That very experience of the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies once a year, that's ours when we bow before the Lord by the power of His Spirit. We're a holy nation. We're a kingdom. The church is the beachhead of the kingdom of God. Citizens and rulers with a purpose in glory. We've been given grace and peace. Peace, real peace. 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not just an absence of conflict between individuals, but an actual true realization that the Lord delights in who we are as his children because of the blood of Christ shed for us. It's what defines then all of life and our relationship with God. That should be comfort and freedom then when we do face trials of many kinds. That should be a reality that every time that the accuser brings before us that list from Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, and we encounter the holiness of God and recognize our shortcomings, we can be reminded of the blood of Christ, that we stand by grace and peace before him. This is the faithful one, the true witness, who we can believe, who's overcome the grave, That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 can say, one day we will be able to ask the question, where, O death, is thy sting? Because the power of Christ. This is the God who guides and controls all history, who secures our salvation and the victory of history. So when you face, when we face the next trials and sufferings in our life, we're not doing that alone. I'm not doing that in my own strength, my own power. I'm not doing that as a ruling elder. I'm not doing that as an American. I'm not doing that as a father or a husband. I'm doing that because this is my Lord and Savior. This is what has been accomplished for me. This is who I am now in Christ. The trials, as Revelation goes on, are going to come without question. But after all, that's the answer of the gospel when it comes to facing trials. If this Lord is for us, who, what, when, where, and why can be against us? Our response to the world, the flesh, and the devil comes as an answer to who we think Christ is. Is he actually all-powerful? Is he actually all-wise? Is he actually all-loving? And if the answer to that is yes, how we endure trials looks radically different from the rest of the world. We can be in the midst of prison knowing we're about to be beheaded as Paul was in Rome and still be content in that situation. We can be cast out of our homeland as Peter eventually was. We can be marooned on an island as John is and yet still say, I am content. We can be the church in any age of history, in prosperity, in want, in communist Russia, in communist China, in a Muslim-majority nation, and yet still be as confident and content as anywhere else. After all, we are and were and will be more than conquerors through the Lamb who was slain. And we need to be reminded that when we face those trials that it's in the power of Christ. There's nothing in here about using the ways of the world. The Bible's instruction is that Christ's victory comes by the foolishness of the gospel. But let's be reminded that here, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, when we walk into trials that he's promised will be there, he's also promised us to be with us even to the end of the age. There's nothing that can overcome him. When John starts walking through the trials of each one of these seven churches, he's basically just going to dip back 
into these verses at the beginning. He's essentially just going to remind us of who we are. And when the book of Hebrews tries to set up the superiority and the supremacy of Christ as the one to guide us into heaven, into the final kingdom, what does it tell us to do in Hebrews 12? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Revelation is no different. It knows that there's going to be a bunch of tribulation, a bunch of trials, a bunch of suffering beyond anything that we can really get a good grasp of at the end of things here. But what does it start out with time and time again? How does it ensure us that we're going to get from verse 1 in chapter 1 to the very end of Scripture? By reminding us and giving us a vision of who the Lord is, what He has done for us, and to prepare us to follow the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Revelation, if that's true of chapter 1, I hope you realize is actually a practical book. It's intended to instruct us as we face the trials of life. Now, I won't blame you if you get to chapter 4 and 5 and start to get confused and bogged down. But read chapter 2. Read chapter 3. Think through the lessons that these churches are having to encounter as they're facing overwhelming trials. And be prepared that whenever we face trials and sufferings, to be motivated as saints and living under trials by who Christ is and what he has prepared for us. Because after all, we belong to Christ and Jesus wins. Let's pray. Emily, Father, Lord, life is full of uncertainty, it seems. Now, if we can't predict a global pandemic that's going to bring the world to its knees even weeks before it does, who are we to arrogantly declare what's going to come this afternoon? But Lord, you do. You know what we will face. We know what trials will come about for the people of God, but you also know how things will end because you're in charge. Uh, Lord, I ask that for all of us uh, here in in times of a a holiday weekend with friends and family, uh, Lord, in a summer that that seems to be relieving some of the burden of this uh, current global trial, Lord, that you would use the time, uh, allow each and every one of us to be preparing for what comes next. Trials as parents, as husbands, as wives. Trials as the church and the world, as employers and employees. Lord, we ask that you would place ever before our eyes a vision of Jesus Christ. As he truly is. Not as the world would have him, but as the one who has bled for us died for us, but as the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the Almighty who has loved us and knows the true goodness for the world, for us. Lord, shape us that we would be prepared to walk faithfully and confidently without compromise as we endure life in a sinful and fallen world. But let us do so victoriously through Christ Jesus, in whom we pray.
Amen.